Okay, I think we are live. Welcome everyone, my name is Luke Thomas and this is the UFC 223 post-fight special. If you don't want spoilers, now is your chance to get away. Otherwise, when we come back from my short little stinger here, we're going to play some spoilers. So if you want to know what happened and you want to discuss it all, give me just a second. As I mentioned before, it's my UFC 223 post-fight special. Okay, we are back. A couple of news and notes to get to here. I'm going to talk to you on this camera for about 45 minutes or so. We'll break down everything. Then we'll go to the Twitter cam over here at the end. So you can see my information at the bottom of the screen here on both Twitter and Instagram. Hit me up there. By the way, please, of course, subscribe to the channel and like this video as well. And as a bit of a surprise for you donkeys, you can see my t-shirt for the TRT Turtles. There's a link to my store in the description box. Plus, fresh off of his win over, let's go here, off of his win over uh, Al Iaquinta. Uh, no likenesses used, no names, no uh, faces, no nothing. This one's totally free in the clear. If you want the new and new shirt that we're, we uh, that my partner made, Judd, it's now for sale. There's a link for it in the description box below. You may not be able to tell, but it says, of course, and new. And then in Russian right below, it says Pride of Dagestan. This is our Pride of Dagestan shirt. It is now available for sale. In uh, The link is in the description box below. So if you guys want that, you can get that as well. Appreciate anybody who makes that a purchase. Okay. Um, all right, let's begin, shall we? UFC 223 is in the books. Of course, you know, as you know, I'm sponsored by uh, the Beta Academy in Washington, D.C. as well. There's a link for them in the description box, too. Tons of sponsorships. Had to get that out of the way. But let's get to it now, shall we? UFC 223 is over. This took place at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York. I was there all week. I got back this morning. If you watched my pre-fight podcast, you know that. In your main event, Habib Nurmagomedov defeating Al Iaquinta. Here are the scores. 50-44, 50-43, So, what lesson can we draw from that? Mm, probably a couple. I have a feeling that the hot takes for this fight are going to be out of control. I just have a feeling that something is going to be terribly, terribly wrong. Um... Who the real champ is, how we're going to overemphasize everyone's, I would say, liabilities, how we're going to undersell everyone's strengths, and not just Habib's, everybody's, because everyone's going to have an axe to grind. Some people are going to be defiant about what they saw today with Habib Nurmagomedov. Some people are going to be emboldened by what they saw today, and no one's ever going to agree on anything. I can tell you that while there might be some clarity in the sense that there is now only one champion in the weight class, there is no clarity about who the best lightweight in the world is. Now, let's be clear about this. Those scores, as I read them to you one more time, 50-44, 50-43, and then 50-43. The truth of that is that sounds very, very dominant. And to an extent, it, of course, it really, really was. Um, however, as I'm blocking uh, people who are just hitting me up on Gchat, I don't know what this is all about. Um 
those scores don't tell the story. I mean, they tell part of the story, but not the full story. What would you say the full story is? The full story is that, no question about it, Nurmagomedov is your deserving winner. Uh, for at least two, we could say three rounds, so the first two and then the fifth, Nurmagomedov did a great job just being Nurmagomedov, uh, getting to him, either establishing a body lock at first he didn't it was it's not an ankle pick if you don't get it off the first ankle but then taking the ankle pick and then turning it into a treetop takedown of kinds he had he had trips he had high crotch lifts that turned into trips he was just being what you would know he had excellent back control um he got a little high at times was able to do like the beginning of what it well it's not really a Sulaev stretch because the Sulaev stretch goes not really behind the knee but to the ankle but wrapping behind the knee to then if you drive your hips in you can and rotate you can turn them off their base so they can't shuck you off over the top so he did a really good job with that he was just who he was but here's the issue with that by the third and fourth round and I don't think Al won any of them in fact the judges didn't think he did either but a couple of those that got a little dicey, and here's the bigger part. Nurmagomedov couldn't really take him down. He was popping the jab, and the jab was not was not bad. Um, in fact, it was bloodying Ally Quinta's face, but it wasn't really putting the fight in peril. right? It wasn't really putting uh, Quinta in peril. Um, it was scoring. It was landing. It, it reminded me, and I tweeted this, it reminded me of like Jake Shields level striking where it doesn't look particularly impressive, but then... You go back and you watch the fight, and for the most part, you know, the Jake Ellenberger fight notwithstanding, he doesn't get beat up too bad. Sometimes he actually lands on them better than he got landed on. It's sort of surprising in that regard. Um, but nevertheless, he couldn't get the takedown for two whole rounds, and one of those extended into the championship minutes. Uh, UFC commentator Jimmy Smith noting that the corner of Nurmagomedov was giving him strategic advice, but not tactical advice. In other words, we need you to go to the ground, but tactically, not, not telling him how he could set it up. So what can you say about the Nurmagomedov win over Al Iaquinta? My personal opinion is that I think both sides of the argument have something strong to say about it. It's pretty clear that Nurmagomedov is a terrifying force, but there are still a lot of holes in his game. You know, look, the fact that he is such a specialist in the way that he is, is great, except for the fact that um, it has clearly come at a cost of him developing other portions of his game. Right? People always ask me, why don't you see more rubber guard in MMA? Yo, because rubber guard takes a long time to get good at and is hard. And how often do you find yourself in back in modern MMA? And and you have to spend all that time getting good at, getting good at it, excuse me, when you could be spending time doing something else. So just people just don't invest in it and... There, there you go. It's kind of like that, you know. Um, and I acknowledge that you can't watch this performance and say, "Wow, there are some real questions about the upper bound limit of his ability." On the other hand, you can also look at this and say, "And no one ever takes this seriously, but you should." Doesn't matter if it's Nurmagomedov, made off, someone else you like, someone else you hate. You should take this seriously. A lot of times, a guy gets an opponent switch and they don't look like themselves. Perfect case in point, John Jones was scheduled to fight Daniel Cormier uh, at UFC, what, 197? Then last minute, he has to fight Ovin St. Preux, and he didn't look like himself. And everyone was like, well, he didn't look that good. That was pretty terrible, blah, blah, blah. And then he comes back at, what, UFC 214? And 
looked better than ever. And again, you're going to say what you want to say about maybe he was on steroids or what, but it was pretty clear that there was a, a training for a specific guy matters for both of them. It matters for Ally Quinta and it matters for Habib Nurmagomedov. No one's going to acknowledge that for Habib Nurmagomedov. They only acknowledge it for Al. Oh, well, Al had a last-minute change of opponent. Yeah, so did Habib. So did Habib. So it's like it's both. It's that... Was this the best version of Habib in part because of an opponent switch? Uh, no, I, 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 it was not the best Habib. And I do think it was in part of an opponent switch. Also, it deserves to be acknowledged, and you heard the commentary team talk about it. His stand-up, while better, is still not great. You would imagine that a very tricky, polished striker like Nurmagomedov, excuse me, like McGregor, or even to an extent someone who mixes it up like a Tony Ferguson, might be able to find some openings there. I think both of those things can be totally true. I just don't agree that the only take is to say, well, Habib exposed or something like, you know, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, Habib would uh, not last two minutes with so-and-so. It's like the guy is 26-0 for a reason. And uh, he clearly is a formidable talent and he clearly is uh, an excellent fighter. Um, and those takedowns he got were vicious. The control he had was vicious. I thought Ally Quinta did a pretty good job breaking the hands along the fence line. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, all he needed was one underhook and he could get underneath the hips, lift, turn, trip. It was there, but then he got stuck in the middle of the portion of that fight, just kind of exchanging out there, and it didn't go well for him, man. It was, it was not a good look. It was not a good look, even if I think some of that is partially understandable. I would submit to you that Al Iaquinta didn't win a round tonight. Not on the judges' scorecards, not on mine either, though. He got a little bit close on maybe one or two of them, but he certainly earned some respect, I think, deservedly. Um, you know, there was no magic in the air. The only kind of normalcy was that Habib won. I guess that was the only thing we could really expect out of all of this for a crazy-ass week that it was, but I think people also have a... You know, they always had respect for Ally Quinta, but they should have a lot more. I think he showed that there are some... You know, it's hard to beat Habib Nurmagomedov, but it can be... You can you can make inroads. You can... you can. It's not... He's not some invincible machine that I think some people thought he was. Um, he clearly has some limits to that. And I would say that, you know, whether Habib versus Connor and Connor's the guy to show that, will be totally a function of debate. Others might think it's a, oh, it's Tony Ferguson's title for the taking. Again, uh, this is going to be strictly a matter of debate. I, I, I would submit to you that we don't really know. It would depend on what kind of actions those guys take in their fight, when they get matched up, what happens between now and then, who they fight between now and then. Right, I mean, you saw Floyd Mayweather tonight on Showtime. Is he going to be fighting Connor next, for crying out loud? Like, we don't even know what's going to be happening with that. So there's just a lot of things that have been uh, really crazy about that. But I have a feeling that that the, the Nurmagomedov wanted to come into this and not merely win the title, but sort of say in an undisputed sense who the best lightweight in the world was. And I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that's going to be settled this evening. Um, whether it should be might be a different issue, but it's not going to be. And I think you can say that with a fair degree of confidence. The scores might tell one story, 50-44 and then two 50-43s. Pretty ridiculous, but it doesn't it doesn't speak to the larger... like In one fight, this is what I mean about strengths and weaknesses. In one fight, you can look really good, 
and look really vulnerable. It's not an either or proposition. And because of that, and because he gave enough of that to both sides of the debate, both sides of the debate tonight will claim victory. Right? They'll claim victory. And again, I think both of them have a little bit of a point. I would sort of lean... I'm going to be a little bit, a little bit more forgiving of Habib than I think probably his fiercest critics, but that's probably about it. Because I do think you have to acknowledge some of his limits, and I do think you have to acknowledge his extraordinary strengths and his record of achievement. It's it's a little bit of both. But like, did you learn anything new about Habib tonight? Maybe that he has a jab, and his striking's a little bit more functional than we thought. If he can maul somebody up first wrestling, then his striking, while in some ways rudimentary, nevertheless is, you know, combined with some sort of a takedown threat, is enough to mute people offensively. And, and then that's about it. I didn't see a ton of new attacks on the ground. He still is pretty reliant for the on the fence for a takedown. Um, and Ally Quint has been gone long enough where I don't know what we could reasonably say new about him other than this was a great opportunity for him and you can understand why he couldn't get it done. But, but let's be clear about this. An opponent switch for either guy at the last minute, even for someone who fights in a linear fashion as he does, as Habib Nurmagomedov, it's going to be a challenge. And it makes you wonder what would have happened if there was a Max Holloway contest, right? It really makes you wonder, would he have stopped the takedown? I would have thought that Habib was going to get anybody down who is in his weight class, right? And I don't think anybody can stop that takedown if he really wants it. But how many times can he get it? How fast can could uh, Max Holloway have gotten back up? I've been a big believer in the development of Max Holloway's takedown defense. And I think you've seen tonight that there are ways, especially if you can establish your own jab and you can establish distance and you can stop a takedown in the middle of the, con uh, of the cage and not get backed up against the fence, there are ways to take rounds from this guy. There are ways to make him look human. Easier said than done, but it is doable. It is definitely, definitely doable. So just keep that in mind. We'll come back to that with some of your questions. And again, the last 15 minutes or so, we'll go to the Twitter cam. So just keep that in mind. We now move to the co-main event, Rose Namajunas versus Ioana and Jacek, 49-46, 49-46, 49-46. I I did not see it that way. I saw it as 48-47. Um, I had three rounds to two for Namajunas. I had her first, second, and fifth. What an excellent fight. Back and forth. Both ladies out there really giving it to you. Uh, to as an audience member and to each other, I thought Nami Yunus's footwork was incredible. She was able to draw out from Yinjechek some kind of a response, which she could then counter and then bull rush to the extent she needed to. But if she wanted to play on the outside, she could do that. She had great head movement, right? She really was. It was the, the first two rounds. Just they had the complexion of the kind of striking that she was offering. And then you go to the third and fourth rounds, and that's when I think everything changed. That's when it had more of a Muay Thai feel, when the leg kicks for Ioana really began to get going, and she found you know, much better timing, and she could throw the leg kicks at the beginning of combinations, at the end of combinations, get out of the way, threaten with middle and then head kicks as well to sort of mix things up. So you saw some of that. And then she just had a rhythm and a pace, and, and it was just going for her. And then in the fifth round, I don't know how you don't have anything but just absolute absurd level of respect for Rose Namajunas at this point, comes out with a torched lead leg, I think it was her left leg, comes out and then just finds a way to, to, to bully forward, finds a way to score, gets in the face of, Nam, of, of, of Yin Jacek, and wins the fifth round, not really on guts, uh, it's some sort of 
you know, undefined sense. But more than that, she gets out there and takes a few shots to really bully and push and and volume attack Yin uh, Jacek. To me, the big weapon for Rose Namajunas, this is no secret, was that left hand. And everyone kept calling it the left hook. The left hook did a lot. But she was hooking it, shovel punching it over the top, coming down with it, jabbing with it. Her left hand, it's not like just the left hook, although that's pretty potent. It's the left hand generally. It's a super versatile weapon for her. She can do it at the beginning of combinations, at the end. She can hook it in directions. She can bring it up the middle. She can come over the top, as I mentioned. It's got directionality. It's got it's got it could be part of a combination. It can lead combinations. It can end combinations. It's it's really it's really impressive what she was able to do. And I I think also you have to take your hat off to Yoani and Jacek. I always thought that weight cut excuse, if you want to call it an excuse, was not a bad argument. No one ever wants to hear excuses, but we live in a world where yes, do we not at least consider that? Is it not conceivable that at some time in history? somebody's injury or terrible health condition affected their ability to perform at a reasonably high level? How could anyone say that's not true? It's not only is it true, it's probably true more regularly than we even want to admit. I absolutely think it played a role in the first one. And, I, you know, there's still a level of debate you can have about to what extent that part is true. But it seems that it is incontestably somewhat part of that first fight story. Yes, of course, it's the ascendancy of Rose Namajunas. But she got pushed to the brink here. She got pushed by a healthier Yoana, an adjusted Yoana, and a confident Yoana, and a dialed-in Yoana. And the reality for Yoana is that that wasn't enough this time, but it was pretty close. It was pretty close. I don't think those scores reflect how competitive the fight was, ultimately. Um, same for the first one. Like, Nurmagomedov's scores here are absurd, but that doesn't really properly reflect the, the, the full scoring. And now you have this position where Nama Yunus will, will probably have to face Andrade. Here's what's interesting to me. Andrade is not a good matchup for Ioana. Ioana is not a good matchup for Rose, but Andrade might be a good matchup for Rose. So you might have this, like, is is Ioana and Jacek done being a title contender? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, maybe she can't beat Rose Nama Yunus anytime soon, but she might actually find herself in some kind of title position, particularly if Andrade gets it and keeps it for a time, and she continues otherwise to keep winning. Now, maybe she might move up to flyweight and go and try and fight um, Valentina Shevchenko, but Valentina Shevchenko had her way with her in the Muay Thai scene. So, I mean, not that it wouldn't be compelling, but kind of know how that movie's going to end, I think, anyway. Um, and Nami Yunus, what a deserving champion at this point. Again, I, I really do wonder about how it's going to go down against someone like Andrade, who's physical, can wrestle, be in your face. We're really going to have her tested, but this is... I, I know some people after that fight were like, ah, it was a little bit flukish. You know, may, maybe they're overemphasizing what impact that weight cut had on Joanna, right? Because there's both... Again, it's always both sides. One side says the weight cut did nothing, and then the other one says the weight cut did everything. Probably somewhere in the middle. Let me get some water here. Um, but for me, she left no doubt this time. And... Coming back in that fifth round, showing that championship medal. You know, that's what champions do. They get pushed into the fire, and then they come out the other side. And that's what you saw here. I, I, again, I judges, whatever. I believe that Yin Jacek won the third and fourth rounds, and I think Rose may have thought she did as well. 
and that she really had to step it up and get out there and just take the fight by the scruff of the neck and push forward. And I think she did. I really believe that she did. And, and, and uh, it was a growth moment. It was a ascendancy moment. It was a moment of proof and truth. And you just have to be incredibly impressed by the work of Rose Nama Yunus. And, and Janjicic had a great run as champion, but that's over for now. But I don't think it's over forever. I do think that she, provided she stays in that weight class, although the weight cuts are getting pretty tough, she might have some pretty interesting things to do uh, left in that weight class still. And by the way, women's straw weight to me, I don't know how anyone can make an argument otherwise. Best weight class in women's MMA by far. By far. Also of note, and this was something we'll discuss a little bit later, but like, is it just me? I, I mentioned this on Twitter. Everyone talks about, oh, the women's MMA hip tosses and how they always do it. Forget about that. That's part of the story too. But there's other takedowns besides just hip tosses from the upper body. Like there's a gazillion of them. Is it not apparent to you at this point that for whatever reason, I'm sure the fact that there's not as much of a wrestling background on the women's side is a big exploratory reason, but women's MMA has significantly higher degree, hip tosses notwithstanding, still has a significantly higher degree of upper body takedowns. You don't see a lot of level changes in women's MMA. You don't see a lot of knee pounds. You just don't see a lot of people just dive um, and really try to get up under a punch and then run through somebody like that. Um, I, I think somebody who does might have a real competitive advantage at some point. I guess we're going to have to see, but that really was apparent to me. Other than that takedown she got at the end, TJ Dillashaw uses it to great effect. Um, the, the outside trip off the double, if you don't have a nice ability on a double, because if you just pick up a double and then you just run it back, you might get it, especially if you can just pick someone off their feet and then crash with them. But chances are you might not get it. You want to get it and turn at an angle right when you get it. You pick it up and you run this way. You pick it up and you run that way, ear to their back, whatever direction they're facing and whatever way you pivot, right? You kind of just move that direction. Because if you think about it, I can move forward very easily. I can move backward relatively easily. But if you block, it's hard for me to go side to side. And so that's what needs to happen. In any case, but if you're not real good at that, you can just still run them straight back and then you just lay the trip on the back end. So it's like a really good way. Plus... If it doesn't work, you can get to your knees and stand very, very quickly. So it's a, it's a nice option to have in MMA. And you're seeing it become more and more effective using it to get you want to get J-check down. Pretty impressive. You know, putting her against the fence and trying to dig under hooks and then get your hands together underneath her rear end. As you saw, who was it, Gedalia trying to do? It's got limited, you know, run. But this was, this was, uh, this she was able to do pretty successfully. Let me stop something here for just a second, if I may. Here we are. Uh, okay, Hanato Moicano defeating Calvin Cater, 29-28 and two 30-27s. Not a whole lot to say about this contest, except yet another guy. How old is Hanato Moicano at featherweight? 28 years old. Here we have another featherweight contender. Calvin Cater, not an older guy either. I don't think 30, but now we have another 28-year-old in that division moving on up the food chain. Folks forget that Moicano... Has fought a lot of tough guys. He gave Brian Ortega the business before, you know, making a strategic error late. And look, Brian Ortega's an amazing guy and got that win fair and square. I'm just saying he was hanging in there at a bare minimum with him and doing quite well against him, probably winning right up until the end there. Hanato Moicano was a very, very talented guy. He can fight in every dimension of the game and more to the point, what great Muay Thai this guy had. 
just the just the rhythm he was able to find. He was able to establish a fantastic distance throughout the course of that fight. Great pivoting I saw. Um, outside leg kicks. I like the inside leg kicks because when you and you hit it, if you if you hit it just right, you can hit it and carry and turn them. You saw like you, you, on the balls of his feet, Cater was getting turned because his leg was getting hit so hard at an angle. I really love that kind of thing, and you saw a lot of that from Moicano. It was just effortless Muay Thai, effortless Muay Thai. Cater's a good fighter, but he just seemed like he was more static. Just didn't have the same kind of dynamism in the fluidity, shot choice, combination, pocket awareness. Shot, so I mean, every, everything that Moicano needed to do, he was doing in that Muay Thai. And it ultimately just overwhelmed him. And there you go, another young gun. Everyone, you know, it was weird because, like, Brock Lesnar got basically announced as coming back. I mean, it wasn't a formal announcement, but, you know, they kind of hinted at it. And everyone was like, oh, another retread. And I'm like, what are y'all talking about? Yes, this would be, like, what, the third comeback for Brock Lesnar? All right. I mean, I can understand people being a little bit tired of that on its own terms. But this idea that like the UFC is not investing in its next generation. Did we not just get off of UFC 222 where we had seven fighters under 30 go out there and boss other people around? Now you have another one on the list getting back on the winning track, especially as part of that Brazilian market. We have talked ad nauseum about you had this huge legion of Brazilian stars who uh, have faded of late, who have not done well and are, are going away. And they need to be replaced by the next generation. And we'll see what happens with Hanato Moicano as time goes on. He has his limits as well, but he's part of that generation, less than 30 years old. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. Maintaining a presence in the U.S., how big will Hanato Moicano be? Maybe not so big, but as somebody they can take to Brazil in the future and may contend for a title at some point down the line, I don't think it's inconceivable at all. Not at all. So great for him to, to get that kind of a win. Uh, and and looked great doing it, and he needed to because I think he, the Ortega fight was what was that his last contest? Yeah, yeah, it was UFC two fourteen was his last contest, and he was beating good guys: Tomney and Amaki, Zubara, Tugugov, Jeremy Stevens, and then Calvin Cater. Man, that's a legit resume. And he was beating Brian Ortega before uh, you know he went and made a terrible strategic error in that last round. So featherweight looking good, looking very good. Now, that brings us to a gentleman at Featherweight that I think is probably your next big thing. Zabit Magomed Sharapov defeats Kyle Bokniak, 29-28, 230-27s. No 29-28 for me, 30-27, although I acknowledge there were some deficiencies there. Zabit Magomed Sharapov is, is excellent at everything. There's nothing he's bad at. Nothing. Now, there are a number of things that he needs to improve upon. I think he wastes energy with these high amplitude throws or these acrobatic kicks. Some of them are interesting. He did land that but, but the jumping spin kick as Bokniak was moving into him and as he was moving away, which was incredible timing. But, you know, the hand plant, take, uh, capoeira-style head kicks, I mean, we can leave that shit for somebody else, please. Because he kind of faded in this one. And as you can see, at this level, not everyone fades because you have a lot of tricks up your sleeve. Now, he's not just trickery and gimmicks. He's the real deal Holyfield. But he's doing a little bit of that. Where he's wasting a lot of energy on just low percentage stuff that looks good. That he can pull off because you know most of the time guys can't make him pay in that moment. right? You'll notice he just sort of throws whatever he wants to throw. And doesn't really worry about getting taken down because his takedown defense is so good. But... 
It's not that that's the threat. The threat is that you're not going to put these guys away because it's not really going to land. And then when you're later on in the fight, are you going to get tired? Yes. But on the good side, wow, he is tremendous. Excellent takedown defense. Ridiculous takedowns. Back control is phenomenal. Passing is phenomenal. Uh, he did. He got stopped this time because Kyle Bokniak has had good guard retention there. But nevertheless, that's what he's shown. You go back to the Shaman Marais fight. He had unbelievable neon belly as you can see here really good distance management doesn't panic very very fluid striking has good and reflexive shot selection he can just think about what he has to throw and he can make calculations very quickly his balance when he was to throw those kicks and uh, everything is hard enough but when he was avoiding the takedown you could see his balance was incredible this guy has all the tools to be somebody special and he called out Yair Rodriguez love this fight because it's, the striking might be phenomenal or somebody likes to beat Megaman Sharapov could just take him to the ground and uh, uh, have his way with him probably in a way like if you wanted to really do that but one of the things that he also that to beat Megaman Sharapov needs to work on is not merely um, you know finding things that are less taxing on him but also putting guys away a little bit with a little bit more direct focus and effort because I think he could and he's not, and that's a bit of a problem. But, man, that guy, I'm telling you, that guy is the next big thing in that division. I said it before the fight, and I'll say it now, too. Nothing, nothing about my opinion changed. Some seasoning still still needs to happen. Some, some focus and repurposing needs to happen. But that's to be expected as someone developmentally brings themselves along. Um for now beyond impressed and then oh Chris Grutzemacher defeating Joe Lazon at two minutes of the fifth round TKO corner stoppage Joe came out like came out like a bat out of hell but he just wore down and they began to have this clinch battle and the real bad sign for me was not that that Joe was taking abuse per se although that was a problem as well it was that they would get into these clinch scenarios and the only thing you would see Joe do for the most part was hang on Grutzemacher and then he would have these occasional bursts for like a few seconds but for the most part he was just kind of holding the hands and just waiting or collar tying and just waiting and then meanwhile here comes Grutzemacher up the gut elbow over the top uppercut whatever and then you just see Joe kind of hanging on a little bit and rather than you know spinning turning throwing attempting a takedown just having some kind of presence in the moment he was just you know, hanging on, and um, you know, obviously, we got a lot of respect for the the career that Joe Lozon has had, the bonuses that he has won, but it has probably come at a cost. Thirty four years old, he's over forty pro fights in. I thought the analysis of his ability to absorb damage and then not have it affect him like it used to, and now have it heavily affect him now, was very fair and appropriate and timely. You know, no no one is no one is twenty five forever. You know, not even not even um, not even the very best ones. And Joe's been a really good one, and it just felt like that corner or that ref or somebody needed to step in and help him, and I'm glad they did. That that fight, if it had gone on longer, it would have resulted in totally unnecessary damage. There's no point in him. He took enough abuse as it is. And you know, for all of the debates that we've had in MMA about corners not throwing towels, not protecting guys, waiting for the ref to save them, waiting for a doctor to save them, you know, fighters aren't going to quit. They need someone to quit for them. And one of the good things about Joe Lozon is, A, he has a corner that cares about him, and B, he's worked with him a long time. 
So that corner probably feels empowered to protect him in a way that, you know, some of these guys who come to a team for six months, they may, that team may not feel empowered to do that, but his team does and they made the right call and they deserve to be commended for that. As for Chris Grutzmacher, he looked pretty good. I don't know exactly what I would say he can go from here, but the resiliency to hang on as Joe was coming out firing early, good defense, good movement, and then realizing that he was having a lot of success inside that pocket, inside that clinch, and then just pouring it on without hesitation, but without going crazy either. It was a nice, even application of offense. I really appreciated that from him. Uh, that takes us to the preliminary card. As I mentioned before, if you're watching, please like the video, subscribe to the channel. We'll go through these, and then I'll go back to Twitter, and then we'll talk about all the stuff, because I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure you want to talk about Habib and Tony and Connor. I can just, I can see it out there, so we'll get to that. Pardon me. <clears throat> Carolina Kovalkiewicz defeating Felice Herrig. Split decision, 29-28, 28-29, 29-28. I didn't see it that way. I saw it as Kovalkiewicz basically running away with this. Maybe maybe um, you could give Herrig one, but that was about it. Here is the reality of it. Herrig did not look like she had a speed advantage by any stretch of the imagination. She did look to be in tremendous physical condition, and I did see her when they tie up. I could see she was stronger, and that wizard that she had really protected her from getting um, bowled over. But Karolina Kovalkiewicz just had smoother technique and better awareness of how to apply it, particularly in close range. So if she was bombing on her with strikes, what what Felice Herrick told me before the fight was, well, I don't have the same you know devastating Muay Thai clinch as she does. She acknowledged that Kovalkiewicz's clinch was really good, but that she thought a, a takedown opportunity would present itself if she was getting battered a little bit. And so I was like waiting to see if that had materialized, and it didn't. In fact, it was the opposite. It was that when Kovalkiewicz was battering her and then Felice wanted to defend, that then opened up the possibility for Kovalkiewicz to stop striking but then go to her takedowns. And they had varying degrees of success and failure, mostly failure. But my only point is that Herrig, yes, the wizard saved her, but you could see it was a lot of brute force in the wizard keeping her upright, whereas Kovalkiewicz was out there just you know dynamically, let's throw you. Oh, you want to get back up? Let's go right back into the clinch. Let's push you around. I mentioned before, you talk about Joe Lasan hanging on Chris Grutzemacher. Look at what Kovalkiewicz does. Exact opposite. She's yanking on a, on a neck, and she's turning and, and pushing and pulling. And when she drives a knee into you, she's driving force that way, and then she's bringing you to her. So there's this clash at the same time, right? Vicious. Very, very good. It's, you know, there's a whip and a turn to all of her uh, clinches. Um, so she'll drive you for a moment, turn you for a moment, spin you, pull you, push you. That off balances you. It confuses you. You have to. You're only thinking about your balance. You're not thinking about your defense. And got, people are like, how can they be so defenseless in the clinch? Because when you're getting spun and turned and pushed and pulled, your natural human reaction is to find your footing and to think about that. And you don't really think about all the other openings you might be leaving. Kovalkiewicz is the master at manipulating that instinct to then find opportunities to score, and score she did over and over again, wearing her down, pushing her against the fence, not with brute force, but with the with the you know the beauty of her technique. I don't know how else to say it. That's really exactly what it was. Uh, what does that put her in the division? Let me pull up the rankings, if I may. Let's see. Whatever these are fucking worth. As it stands, where is she? She's four, with Gedalia Andrade and Jacek ahead of her. 
Now, your J-check might drop from here. I guess we'll see. She might not. You know, you lose twice to the same person. I think you should drop beyond the number one contender spot. We've talked about this ad nauseum, the contendership queue. The rankings are not like, oh, I think X is better than Y in some kind of generic sense. No, it is about a contendership queue. That is what it is for. Who is the most deserving based on historical but also recent accomplishment in, me in meriting a title shot? And if you've lost twice to the same person in the title opportunity, in my judgment, you don't deserve to be ranked number one anymore. So that should move her down. That should move, move Kovalkiewicz back up. But you still have Andrade and Gedalia ahead. So kind of interesting how that might turn out as well. Um, but it puts her certainly back in a decent spot. Uh, Olivier Aubin Marcier defeating Evan Dunham. Evan Dunham coming in on short notice, getting put away at 53 seconds. Uh, it was a punch to the body, and then it was two knees that finished him off. And what was so great about it was on the first knee, which was a liver shot that landed, you can see Aubin Marcier pull the elbow up, so then to drive a lane into it. Now it would be on the side, of course, but that's how he did it. He yanked his elbow up and then drove a knee up the gut. That is just so great. <laughs> so goddamn great. That is what that is. I love seeing stuff like that. It's not just, you know, you're throwing strikes and that they land or that they don't land. Let me just find that soft under... And it wasn't soft, but you know what I'm saying? Like, let me just find that that proverbial and literal underbelly uh, and take advantage of that, right? I mean, I just love the... the there's, a, there's a certain degree of pleasure that I derive from scientific sadism. I just do. Uh, I think we, we all do to an extent, which is why we like it. Sadism for sadism's sake doesn't do a whole lot for me. But sadism backed by best practices and athleticism and some sort of, you know, general notion of, of science to me is, uh, you know, they call boxing the sweet science. They should call MMA the sadistic science because they're both science. But one is just, you know, there's just a, manipulating someone's body to drive a knee because you're just pulling it up. It's like big brother big bank take a little bank kind of thing you know seems small maybe maybe i'm over exaggerating it but i just love seeing stuff like that it it it, it certainly it warms the cockles of my heart uh okay ashley evan smith defeating beck rawlings won't go too far into this but one of the things i noticed from ashley evan smith was when she, she was more there was times when she was just running in straight lines and getting countered one of the things I did like from her was I thought her circular footwork was better. And here's what I mean by that. She was not cage cutting. In other words, she was finding her position relative to her opponent as opposed to spatially in the octagon, finding where, um, pushing her, how do I say this exactly? If I'm just following my opponent, I might put myself in a disadvantageous position in terms of the spatial uh, requirements of the octagon. In other words, if we were in an open, infinite plane, it wouldn't matter. But because there are walls and angles to it, and it's a confined, finite space, there are places you should and shouldn't be, depending on who you're fighting. And for the most part, it's better to cage cut than to not cage cut. Not always, but generally speaking. Um, and she wasn't doing a great job of that. She was just kind of circling on the outside. However, she was doing a lot of, I thought, uh, on the outside, good movement, and also a lot of L-stepping. L-stepping is when you'll see, they call it L-stepping for a reason. They'll take a step back and then lateral. You'll see it all the time, back and forth. It's a good way to reset the angle back out and then, and then yet still be in the fray. 
Um, it's great defensive footwork. It can be offensive depending on how you use it. It's called L-stepping. You know who's really good at L-stepping? Max Holloway. Max Holloway is an excellent L-stepper. He uses it a lot. Here she was using this, not nearly as well as he does, but it was good to see. Uh, I would have just liked to see her have a little bit better awareness about her space in the cage and then uh, implement that going forward. And then last but not least, Devin Clark defeating Mike Rodriguez. Mike Rodriguez is very, very good. He loses 29-28, then two 30-27s. Uh, Ashley Evan Smith, by the way, wins 30-27 across the board. But Devin Clark defeating Mike Rodriguez. The only thing to really say about this is, I've said it a million times, it is one thing to stop a takedown along the fence line. It is another to create separation, and that's easier said than done. It is very difficult to do, but it is absolutely essential. Mike Rodriguez is athletic and quick and loves to explode into range and can do all those things if he's given space. But Devin Clark didn't, and you're seeing now guys, they call it wall install, but I don't think it's necessarily stalling. It depends, obviously, on what's happened. But you can develop a system of ground and pound where you don't have to ground anybody. It's just against the fence, and they're calling it stalling. But if you're getting teed off on a little bit, are you really stalling? In other words, I can't get the takedown, but I can hold you there, and I can threaten enough of the takedown where you have to defend it, and through your defense... I then have this system of punishing offense where I can just light you on fire with it. There's that, as, there, there's that. And you may never get close to the takedown or, you know, not really all that close. But you got really close to just battering them. You got really close to hurting them. You got really close to just scoring points and keeping them there. And, you know, you think of riding time in college. One minute equals one point. So you have this incentive um, to just ride as much as possible, depending, of course, your strategy and the needs. But you see a lot of guys doing it. I think of riding time against the fence that way, right? You won't get the points exactly in some, the same kind of literal sense. But the longer that they stay up there, maybe you're beating them up, maybe you're not. Although in the case of Devin Clark, he was landing. But you're muting their offense entirely. They can't get anything going. They're just responding to you. Not the most aesthetically pleasing, but very good. Mike Rodriguez came off of the um, Tuesday night Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series with an emphatic KO. Brilliant performance he had striking, but does you no good if you can't, if you can't separate. And again, it's a tough task, but, but that's where we are. All right, if you want to ask me a question on Twitter, especially about the main event, let's revisit it, and then we can go back there and we'll talk about it there. I'm at L. Thomas News. You can see it down there. Yes? Yes. All right. All right, let's go to our Twitter cam, shall we? And by the way, don't forget, if you are a Habib fan, we have the and new shirt in the store just below. So give that a look. And as you can see, you can't quite tell, but just below new, it says Pride of Dagestan in Russia. So there you go. All right? All right. Now, with that out of the way, and this is my TRT shirt, uh, with that out of the way, let us go to the Twitter cam, shall we? All right. There we are. Twitter cam. And then we pull over the tweets here. Okay. Here we are. Screw 155. Do you think all the questions around Rose's cognitive friction have proven false? People look at her emotions, control, and perceived lack thereof and assume she will fold. Well, it's because it's unusual, right? I mean, can we all agree with that? Let me pull this up, make sure this looks okay. Yes, can we all agree with that? It's, it's very unusual. 
No one pe- people make comments about it because they don't really know what to do about it. They uh, most most emotions that you see in MMA are the sort of aggro, you know, I settle disputes by operating under some kind of code of Hammurabi honor system, right? And so here's somebody who is, as you noted, frictionless, as you noted, um, sort of zen, and sometimes it seems almost like emotional and vulnerable. But those are merely, the, that's merely her, what process she has to work out to then guide herself into a competitive position where she can bring all of her strengths to bear. And I just think you have to take, you have to make allowances for um, individual needs and styles and vulner- and then to a degree vulnerabilities and preferences. Uh, people might make fun of her for it. Who gives a shit? She just beat Ioana and Jacek back to back. You know, people can say whatever they want at this point. Um, they can call her weak if they want, but I mean, it, it doesn't bear out in terms of the fights. She beat her the first time in one round, and this one went to the fifth. But what was Rose's most inspiring round? Was it the first? I wouldn't say it is. Was it the second? I wouldn't say it is. Was it the fifth? I would say it is. Where she comes back out, my judgment, tied fight, and she had to go out there and put it on her. You had to rise to the occasion. You had to mentally go in there and compete. You had to freaking compete. And she did that. She did that shit. And that is very much deserving of praise. Uh, Tony is 34, needs LCL surgery, which has a reasonably long recovery time. Somewhere between three and nine months, depending on severity. What's the possibility we will never get the elite fighter Tony Ferguson back again? I certainly can't discount that, but I don't want to make that the... I'm not ready to count out Tony Ferguson yet. I think it's a fair concern. It's a decent question to ask, but I'm not ready to make any bold proclamations about that. I think that Tony, if he could have lasted into those third and fourth rounds, God knows what he could have done to Habib. Uh, because I here's the one thing that you can't say about Al. Al didn't really force Habib into a whole lot of panicked takedown situations. And I have a feeling that Tony would be much more accepting of risk in that regard and probably could have and then what would that have done you know would it ultimately have given up the takedown position by tony or would he have landed on him stuff to take down and really poured it on him it's a great debate to have it's a great debate to have but i do think he would have approached the fight differently in that sense again what's it going to be like when we get back very fair question but until we see what happens i'm not i'm not giving a whole lot up on that one couldn't Habib having to deal with Max pulling out and then going through three other fighters to get a fight during his rehydration? There's no question there. Also, plus Tony pulling out and Connor this week gave us this Habib. Any regular UFC week may have given us a better Habib. Would not have been. Uh, would not. Would this not affect Tony? There's going to be a lot of people who say that it has nothing to do with it. I don't think that's true. I think if you're training for a guy, you had a guy in mind, it's your fourth camp on the guy, and then they give you a fifth opponent in 24 hours or whatever it was. Um, no, fourth. Uh, then that's going to affect you. He did not train for him. Both Neither guy trained for each other. And, and a lot of people don't want to say that that has any effect, but I don't buy that. I believe that it does. I believe that you can be mentally... It can it can it doesn't only change your strategic approach. It can change your mental wherewithal. It can change your confidence. It can do a lot. It can make you more you know 
it can affect your risk taking ability. It can do a lot. It can it can really have a dramatic impact. What kind of risks do you want to take? What kind of approach to a fight do you want to take? What kind of attacks tactically do you want to offer? Oh, I was going to do all those to Tony because he's long and lanky. Can't do that to someone like um, Al. Maybe Al might be physically stronger, so things felt differently. You just really don't know. However, as I mentioned before, are there also reasons to look at this contest and say, man, there are some vulnerabilities there that have nothing to do with a change of opponent that are a little bit worrisome. Because if you go back and look at the Jones fight against um, OSP, he didn't have his chin in the air. He just seemed offensively one note. But now, this time, I mean, there's there's like real ways to get that guy hurt. And I don't see how anybody could deny that. After UFC 223 falling apart, how excited should we all be for Poirier versus Gaethje? If you're a week like that, man, what do you say? I'm supposed to tell you to have enthusiasm. I'm supposed to tell you you should feel great. I'm supposed to tell you that, you know, you should feel wonderful and be full of joy and hopeful and not worried at all that something will fall through. I can't say that to you right now. I'm not going to sit here and try. I'm going to try and live that way. I'm just not. I I mean, what are we supposed to do, y'all? Just give up, you know, mentally say, oh, fuck it. I don't care anymore. So I'm not going to. I'm not, I'm not going to invest emotionally in this. I just don't... There's no point in being a fight fan if you can't invest emotionally. Investing emotionally is what makes it great. Caring. Giving a fuck. Being scared. Being worried. Being excited. Being nervous. Right? That's what being a fight fan is all about. I'm not going to have that drummed out of me. I'm not going to be numbed out by it. Even if I'm supposed to. Even if that might even be better. Even if that might be prudent. I just don't... I don't want to be prudent. I want to be imprudent I want to be I want to I want to you know it's not living on the edge or anything but I I want to have a full range of experiences as a fight fan including the ones that don't feel great or are part of the emotional range of you know experiences on fight night I want to have all those so to me I'm excited about next Saturday I'm I'm hopeful that you know if nothing else maybe that we they, they can't all be this bad right all of the weekends can't be this bad. We're, we're due a good one every now and again. Maybe we go from one bad one to one good one. Or parts of that get salvaged or whatever. I'm still very excited about it. I think that fight matters. I think the fight with Carlos Condit and Cowboy Oliveira matters. Israel Adesanya fights Marvin Vittori on that, on that card. There's a lot. There's a lot to be excited about in, in, in the UFC right now. And, and there's a lot to be angry about too. And there's a lot to be down about. But I just can't live that way, man. I can't live... Yeah, I'll just show up, you know, and just not give a fuck ever. I, uh, here I am on fight week. I don't care anymore. Then don't be here, you know. And I'm not saying that to you or whoever asked the question. But if you feel that way, then, you know, the same for you probably, right? Do you feel that Habib's father not being in his corner played a significant role in any major deficiencies in his performance? Coincidentally, he was the one during the fight, or afterwards anyway, Speaking to Joe Rogan, saying something to the effect of, um, you know, I want to talk to my father to see exactly what I did wrong technically. Almost as if, like, that's the role that he provides in that camp. Right? He doesn't provide the role. He, he might provide a, a number of roles. But one of them is, um, he is the guy that says, down to brass tacks, 
what it is that went wrong and what needs to to be better and how, specifically how to do it. Um, so yeah, prob- it seems like it probably may have played some kind of a role. Again, though, let's be clear about that. You can say that if you want. I think it's fair. I have no problem with it. But you also have to talk about the, the rudimentary nature of his striking and how you can clearly tell that there's just way too much evidence at this point that somebody could take advantage of it. Will they? That's a matter of debate. How well do, will they do it even if they do? Hey, have that debate. But it does seem like that w- that could eventually cost him. Did you guys see this photo that was everywhere all over the arena? They had all these different guys from SBG and I think severe MMA. I couldn't quite tell who some of these guys were. Denied entry to the building. Pretty wild, man. Pretty freaking wild. Dana White says the new television deal is close. That's interesting. I'd be curious to see who that is. I'll retweet that. If you got any questions, shoot me one at L Thomas News. You can see there below. Um, I'm trying to see. Do we have the figures for the gate no we don't not yet hold on who are our bonus winners let's see Uh, highest grossing sporting event in Barclays Center history UFC 208 is number two Tony Ferguson, you're stripping me of a title because of that performance? I see you, ninjas. Still my mat. That's amazing. Um, I could see... How, by the way, he didn't get stripped. His title was dissolved. If it was stripped, it would have been stripped and given to somebody. But it wasn't. It was just, it was just dissolved. Someone asks, how glad are you that this week is over? I am... F- it's not over, first of all. But I am fucking tired, man. Tired. It's been a long week. Could barely keep up with it. You know? Um, Jesus, you know. It was just a lot to process. And as I mentioned in my pre-fight podcast, it was like a lot of bad shit. It was a lot of just bad energy and darkness hanging over the, the, the sport. Um, at a time when it doesn't really need that, you know, you want you want the sport to be making news because oh my god, you know UFC 223 sells whatever you know five million dollar gate fight of this fight of the decade, you know that's what, that's what you want, not the other thing. Did you see the video of Connor at the event? Was it really Connor or was it some imposter? Because there's a, I'm not saying it wasn't, but I'm just saying if you go and look at. Uh, any kind of Conor McGregor event, there's always um, lookalikes there. Like it's like an Elvis Presley convention or something. Also, Habib seemed to gas some, right? He might have. I mean, that cut is unbelievable. He's not really meant for 155. He can do it. But he's not really meant for it. He's huge for the weight class. It's a dramatic cut for him. He probably has a finite amount of them left in him anyway. So, yeah. I know. People are tagging me in the Barstool Sports thing. I understand but I'm telling you, I'm not saying it's not Connor. It may totally be Connor. But what I'm telling you is uh, lookalikes show up to his events 
all the time, like good ones too. So I'll wait for confirmation before I say definitively somebody's cell phone video from the back is clear and unequivocal evidence that it's Conor McGregor. It might be, but I don't. I I, I am I'm a little bit skeptical. Here are your ah oh, here are your bonus winners. Magomed Sharapov and Bokniak each get 50k for fight of the night. Your performance of the night Olivier Aubin Marcier, and your performance of the night Chris Grutzemacher. Hmm. Hmm. Would I have gone that way? Let's see. Um, I would have given one to Rose, to be quite honest, but Chris Grutzemacher could probably use it more. So, can't be too mad at that, right? That's pretty good. Uh, all right. If that is it... Man, what a week it's been, right? Let's move back to um, let's move back to our normal cam, if we can here. There we are. All right. What can I say about this week? Uh, incredible. I I. I I appreciate everybody who watched this YouTube channel this past week. I have a bunch of videos from interviews I did that are no good anymore, so I didn't put them up. But uh, I tried to put up some content that I thought folks might give a fuck about. So thank you for tuning in. The fights tonight were kind of interesting. Um, and they have set up debate that will be endless. Totally endless. Uh, what? I don't know what this is. All right, there we go. Um, endless. Uh, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. I'm kind of losing my mind. But you get the idea. There's just been a lot of things to process, and it's been difficult for everyone. And uh, I appreciate everybody and their patience and, and their patronage. It's been great. Uh, last question. A couple last questions on Twitter. Jimmy mentioned Al exposed Habib. I disagree. What do you think? Uh, certainly underscored some of his weaknesses. Sure. Habib, uh, exposed might be a bit of a strong word. Like, exposed is when there's like these glaring problems that are very easy to take advantage of. Or like in the case of Mackenzie Dern, you know, she can't get the fight to the floor even though she desperately needs to. He can. So the fight might start on the feet, but it's not like Mackenzie Dern striking is like super awesome either. There's this net. I mean, that, that is true vulnerability. He doesn't have that same level of vulnerability, but he has other vulnerabilities that are, are, you know, transactionable. And last but not least, what do you think about the Dana saying the UFC belt versus the commission recognized belt? Is this the beginning of the kayfabe for UFC? Mania is tomorrow. I addressed that on my pre-fight podcast. I highly suggest you give that a look. All right? All right. Um, thank you guys so much for watching. Have a great night. What a week. I'll be doing a watch party tomorrow in this studio, but not from this angle. We'll be over here on the couch. I have a couch in the studio for WrestleMania. Yes, believe it or not, we are going to try and do that. I swear to God. All right, until next time. Thank you guys so much for watching. Get some sleep.